0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Substantial Sexuality. debated on whether to call this substantial beauty or substantial sexuality, and I'm still not sure. But I want to start it off with a quick quote, a quote I've shared before, which will kind of be the key to my thoughts on this topic. It's from the Tom Waits song, Falling Down. And the lyrics go something like this. He wants you to steal and get caught because he loves you for all that you're not. While I let that, that thought from Tom Waits sort of sink in, Let me peel back the curtain just a little bit and kind of talk about how things happen on inappropriate conversations. So a few months ago, during a little bit of time off work, I took a look at the upcoming year and laid out what I thought the topics might be for the entire, for this year, 2015. And part of it was to ensure that I actually was still going to be carrying forward at the same pace that I have been with the Walk the Earth podcast being roughly monthly and inappropriate conversations being almost twice a month. Nothing too scheduled or too consistent. And yet, on the other hand, I do try to maintain a schedule. And I mention it not because of how successful I am at executing my plans, but to sort of call out the places where I kind of fall a little bit short of what I might try to achieve. Because I asked myself this week how things would be different... If I was, you know, able to consistently devote a little bit more time to the podcast, if I was still trying to keep up an almost weekly schedule like I did for the first year. Because I was watching some of the uh, Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary special over the weekend that just happened, and it occurred to me that even though I'd seen some ads, I'd probably chanced across the hashtag for SNL40. I don't think until the show was about to come on, did I really realize that I was about to sit down and watch more than three hours of uh, clips and remembrances and, frankly, glad-handing and back-slapping for the history of Saturday Night Live as a show. I don't consider myself to be a regular viewer of Saturday Night Live. Uh, It's enough in the Internet era to be able to catch the occasional clip from time to time if something good happens. And to be a critic of the show, I would say that Considering that it's been, you know, 90 minutes per episode for normal-sized seasons for 40 years now, there's not really that much genuine quality as a percentage of the total. It falls short, often enough, in a number of ways, and there were perhaps entire eras of the cast that I missed. So, if, if I'm if i not here to praise Saturday Night Live, well, what would I have done if I'd known in advance, if I'd had time to record something... ...related to the Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary. And that's really kind of what I want to talk about, is not doing things on the schedule that I normally would like... ...and maybe not having the time to devote to rearranging that schedule on the fly. If I thought Saturday Night Live 40th was going to be something that would capture my attention and not catch me by surprise... ...I might have reached into some of my archival material and found a somewhat long essay I wrote many years ago in response to a full-page ad placed in newspapers all over the country by the American Family Association. Now, I consider the American Family Association to be a pariah. Uh, I agree with the Southern Poverty Law Center's assessment of them as a hate group, and temporarily rejoiced when I was listening to the Do Ask, Do Tell podcast about a week ago, and them reading a report that Brian Fisher one of the uh, spokespersons, the mouthpiece of the organization, or at least of their, their online and media presence, uh, the person who does a show under the banner of the AFA, had been fired. I've yet to find that corroborating story, though, that confirms it. There was a quote from the current head of the organization, uh, from one of the members of the Wildman family, who, in response to complaints from the Israeli government, that he had made comments relating homosexuality to the Holocaust, basically blaming gays for the Holocaust, which Israel reacted to as if the AFA was engaging in Holocaust denial, which they might as well have been. Any ludicrous statement would be something of a denial. So there was a flap over whether or not members of this group were going to be welcomed on a Holy Land tour and all that, but it looks for all the world like that threatened firing of Brian Fisher was just PR and not actually true. Having said that, though, it reminded me of points in time where I have taken a critical gaze at the American Family Association, and maybe the reason it reminded me of it was that this sort of dishonesty is not new. We've been dealing, frankly, for more than just a couple of years now, probably more than a couple of decades now, with a rampant case of Christians who lie. Christians who feel like maybe their political aspirations have historically been hampered by little problems like ethics and telling the truth. And if they tell themselves they're just playing the political game and playing the political game well enough, then it's okay if they engage in activities which could only very generously be described as spin. If, for another words, a member of the Wildman family has publicly said that they fired Brian Fisher when they didn't, in order to try to appease an angry government, or something along those lines, it would just kind of be par for the course of an organization that had been alleged in the past to have sent in 16-year-old, 17-year-old people to stores like 7-Elevens, dressed up, or even disguised, to look much older than they were, in hopes that that teenager might successfully buy a Playboy or Penthouse magazine, And then the organization could get themselves in the news talking about uh, sinister convenience stores threatening America's youth by selling smut or other such, again, dishonest sort of tactics. But for me, I I wrote that long response to what was an AFA attack against Saturday Night Live. It may have been broader than that. It may have dealt with... Well, lots of other uh, things that they were angry about on the, the declining standards of television. And I can remember off the top of my head, the gist of my point might have been that television, based in part on the, the, the thought process of a former different drummer, Jerry Mander, uh, television exists to sell products. Therefore, giving TV credit for having some sort of sociological or political agenda as if it's trying to destroy the world, or or, uh, ruin America's morals, or do Satan's bidding, or it gives the medium itself too much credit. In some ways, the medium of television is perhaps the message itself, and maybe there are problems that could be cited there. So normally, if I had had my ducks in a row, I would have gone through my archives, which are not terribly well organized, and tried to track down that article, and shared some, or maybe all of it, in a episode about Saturday Night Live. Uh, Bill Murray comes to mind as a potential different drummer for an episode like that. I just didn't get it done. And here's the other interesting thing. I had intended to release both a Walk the Earth episode talking about things related to sexuality and this particular inappropriate conversation right around the time of Valentine's Day. Now, I'm a little bit too far into this week to be even making the recording to be able to say that I was able to put a Walk the Earth Out just before Valentine's Day and an Inappropriate Conversations out just after, but probably my real intent was to have both of them out before Valentine's Day, to be talking about issues related to sexuality, or in this case perhaps substantial sexuality, before Valentine's Day. Because the weekend that we're heading toward right now is a weekend for the Academy Awards. It seems like it's earlier and earlier every year here over the last few years, and now we're in February having an Academy Awards broadcast When I can remember it being uh, March, or maybe even even a little later than March, I think one time in maybe the late 80s, the uh, March Madness for the uh, college basketball usually ends with a Final Four weekend that often veers into early April. And I can remember one time that the uh, college basketball national championship game was on a Monday night, going head-to-head with the Academy Awards ceremony on TV, which back then was on a Monday night. So I know for a fact there's been some Oscar ceremonies that were, if not in the month of April, very close to the month of April, but here we are, not even in March. So the problem I have is, instead of recording a Valentine's Day sort of themed show dealing with sexuality before Valentine's Day and then hitting an Oscar-themed show before the Academy Awards ceremony, I'm going to be a little bit off. Now, this is volunteer work, I guess, is the way I would put it. I view podcasting in some ways as a hobby. And therefore, uh, there's no real financial incentive in play for me to want to make sure that I get things out on some sort of schedule. But I do get frustrated from time to time that things that I occasionally want to speak about before they happen, I'm sometimes speaking about right after the fact. And sometimes these are uh, key dates or anniversaries of sorts that are only known to me. But in this case, I'll be I know for a fact that in about a week or so, I'll be speaking about acting as a profession, as a craft, and a particular kind of acting, and doing it with the Oscars in mind, but hitting it probably after the fact. So that's the reality. Things tend to get a little, a little bit off schedule. But this particular topic I want to hit today does tie in a little bit to the most recent Walk the Earth. Now, the question that was being answered in that particular Walk the Earth uh, episode number 23 was whether the church should have a point of view about sexuality and not to spoil it but i did come away with the answer that was the church should have a view about sexuality mainly when it comes to the idea of fidelity that doesn't mean that the church's point of view should include a big list of do's and don'ts and there's a real fine line there that i didn't get anywhere near walking on walk the earth pun intended but here on inappropriate conversations i'm going to go there Hey, this is Harrison Ford. when I'm not on a canal boat in the UK with my sexy other half, Ali McBeal, I'm listening to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Sin... Shit, where'd she go? Oh, it's okay. She just turned sideways. <laughs> I thought she'd fallen through a crack in the deck. Again. I just heard this very day what I think is one of my favorite podcast episodes of the year. It's a Greetings from Nowhere episode. It just came out on February 19th, number 248, Lady Problems. And at the end of this episode, 248, a long episode, and by the end I mean the second half of it, the guest on the show, Scott, the Seder, from the Seder Sphere, was talking through some of the questions about the TLC program, uh, My Husband's Not Gay. Very interesting show to hear a perspective of somebody who is gay or bisexual, looking at that show from his perspective, and asking some religious questions, because the whole theme of the program is that these people are mired in a very uh, legalistic religious community, and therefore they've chosen to uh, suppress who they are and carry on with a, uh, a sort of a public closeting of sorts. I haven't seen the TLC show. Don't intend to see it, as a matter of fact, but. Their conversation was fascinating because at one point, Christina on the show asked the question, how it would even be possible for a gay man or somebody who in the, uh, the jargon of the show is, uh, deals with same-sex attraction, how that person could be a father, how he could be in any way a sexually attentive husband, which is the premise of the show. And it's kind of interesting, you know, what does sexually attentive mean? Um, There are probably, there's probably a frequency of marital relations in one couple that another couple would view that same uh, situation as a drought, as the amount of affection shown in that relationship, the amount of intimacy, the amount of sexual activity would seem to them to be far too sporadic, where another outside couple could see that same thing and say, oh my goodness, what a bunch of drunk monkeys, what a bunch of, you know, uh, rabbits going wild. So, a lot of, you know, what the right amount of of intimacy and sexual behavior is, well, it's extremely subjective. But Christina's question was, um, how would a gay man even get it up in that situation? And it's interesting, when you ask the question that way, because I think Scott answered the question pretty well, it's one of the reasons that I like the episode so much, is... um, that men are I think we all kind of know that men, and this is speaking broadly stereotypically, of course, but men tend to be more visually oriented, and men also are quick to compartmentalize. so maybe the first concept goes without saying uh, if a woman is going to indulge in sexual fantasy, say in the middle of the 1970s, she's probably going to have a uh, risque or perhaps even an extremely risque equivalent to a romance novel. Uh, what would have been Harlequin three decades earlier would be a much more sexual sort of uh, pulp fiction type thing uh, with words. Uh, a book full of words, I guess, would be the way to word that. Whereas I can remember growing up, and uh, my father and neighbors and other, other uh, friends, kids in the neighborhood's fathers, you know, it wasn't weird back then to have a subscription to a magazine like Playboy. I only know of one person in my entire neighborhood who has a who still has a magazine subscription. I'm not sure whether it's Playboy or Penthouse. The only reason I know is because the mail carrier misdelivered it, <laughs> and I was very surprised by the packaging. You know, it's sort of sealed in plastic uh, so that it couldn't be uh, opened or read. But it was not hard to make out from well, first off, the fact that it was sealed in plastic, and second the the lettering that you could see through the top, you knew what you were dealing with. I thought, wow, there is somebody in this new millennia who is still receiving in the mail a monthly delivery of a softcore pornographic magazine, for want of a better word. But just knowing that that kind of change happened where now maybe people don't have to seek this. You don't have to have it delivered to your home. You don't have to go to a convenience store to try to buy it, running the risk of having to cross an American Family Association picket line to get there. The point is that, generally speaking, women are more likely to seek a sexual thrill through reading words on a page, where men are probably more likely to seek a sexual thrill through looking at an image of some sort. The men are visually oriented. And that's not to say that that there's any advantage or disadvantage from a fantasy perspective there that i think that men have just as much ability maybe maybe more i don't know to think themselves into a situation of sexual excitement but it may be thinking in terms of pictures more often than thinking in terms of words or scenarios and of course there's always going to be a, a little bit of both there so The visual orientation is a given. I think everyone kind of understands that. That's not confusing. But I've met a lot of women over the years, including women I consider to be close friends of mine, who've really struggled to understand the concept of compartmentalization. Maybe I'm a little odd. I run the risk of hitting a topic like this and embarrassing either myself or embarrassing my wife or women that I've known in my past. And maybe I'm going to take a chance here and actually embarrass a couple of women that I've known in my past. We'll see. But... Compartmentalization probably has to be explained right up front. Because I think that it's the hedge that I put around my own point of view, Uh, rather than wrapping this whole episode up into someone who isn't me, um, and using that swim concept to speak about things as if I don't have any uh, skin in the game. Again, pun intended. But first, compartmentalization needs to be understood. And it's this notion that men seem to have an ability, more often I think than women do, of being able to look at a person or a situation or an image and separate out the part of that from the rest of it. and Maybe a good example of this is whether your tastes run from the Paris Hilton side of the spectrum to the Kim Kardashian side of the spectrum. Either way, I'm going to offer an opinion before this is over, and substantial is the key word, but either way, it would be reasonable for someone operating more on a pure intellectual level to say, I don't know what you see in that person, that uh, someone who has this sort of celebrity lifestyle, this sort of modern jet setter, I guess be what we would have called it in the 70s, who exists solely to be famous, and isn't necessarily famous for anything other than being famous, and is frankly fairly vacuous about their fame. Uh, I could layer on more and more insults. I don't think I have to. I think most people, if you mention names like Kim Kardashian or Paris Hilton, immediately go straight to the, the source of the problem, and that there is no there's not much redeeming quality there. And yet men for whatever reason have the ability to say, yes, I'm going to dismiss the things I don't like about Paris Hilton, but oh her legs or whatever. Or uh, same thing with Kim Kardashian, I'm gonna dismiss the things I don't like about her, but ooh, her backside. And men just have this ability to say um, I'm going I'm to find the thing that's good in whatever the overall picture is and separate it from the rest of the overall picture. And that's one example of compartmentalization. At its worst, I think compartmentalization is a pretty good uh, reason, a pretty good explanation for what happens behind the scenes in the mind of somebody who commits adultery. It is not unusual if you were a counselor, for example, To be counseling somebody who's just engaged in an act of adultery or has been in an ongoing pattern of adultery, who still could pass a lie detector test, answering questions like are you a good and faithful husband with a resounding yes. That doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Sleeping with somebody who's not your wife makes you inherently a bad husband. Um, We can argue about whether it makes you a bad father. We can even argue about whether it makes you a bad person, but it certainly makes you a bad husband. And yet compartmentalization can be a factor there in the personality of that individual, somehow allowing him to separate the fact that he is being profoundly unfaithful and doing the one thing that I think the Bible does roundly condemn in sexual behavior and somehow come away feeling like, yes, but. It's that that yes, but quality of things. So two things that you'll see in compartmentalization. One is this ability to separate a part of a woman from the rest of the woman to focus in on just a body part or, or what have you. And it's where you get these terms that we've used, to, you know, for as long as I've been alive. Uh, somebody's a boob man or a leg man or an ass man. That kind of talk is an acknowledgement of compartmentalization. But the other way compartmentalization creeps in is it. it's a way psychologically, and I don't know this from any experience, but it's my hypothesis that it is a way for A gay man to successfully have a sexual encounter with a woman and make the physical mechanics, the physiology to make that work. An example that I've seen in cinema, and it's a good film, worth recommending, in fact. Uh, The movie Saved has a scene where a late teen boy with a girlfriend, uh, he's a Christian boy, she's a Christian girl, and uh, he's struggling with his sexuality. And he tells her in the very first scene that he's gay. And she's convinced that this is the not just terrible news for a girlfriend to hear about your boyfriend. and For many, it would signal the end of a, of a dating relationship. But she's also worried about his eternal soul and somehow comes to the conclusion that the thing she needs to do to quote-unquote save him is to have sexual intercourse with him, as if her having sex with him will fix everything. It's a pretty good example of a lot of the things which, well... To use compartmentalization again as an idea, some of the ideas which make no sense whatsoever to most everybody on the planet, but for some in the religious right, an idea like that might resonate. An idea like that might make some sense to them because they're able to compartmentalize that concept separate from everything else. So to cut to the chase, in the plot of the movie, she happens by his house unannounced. He's looking at a male pornographic magazine and being aroused by it. She happens to show up at the moment where he's already erect, takes advantage of the situation, they have sex, she gets pregnant, comedy ensues. There's a recommendation for the movie saved. I only mention it now because it's an example of how that compartmentalization might work. So let's veer away from what I would consider the extremely unhealthy situation depicted on that TLC, My Husband's Not Gay show, where the best thing you can say about it is it is a massive celebration of self-deception and to some degree even spouse and family deception because even if the women are fully informed and playing along then what you just have is kind of two overlapping layers of self-deception where two wrongs don't make a right but to get away from compartmentalization in that respect and you get back to the term the way I tend to use it it's this notion of a focus of a response of of even a preference if you will Using that term in a very particular way, and to me, if I was to title this show "Substantial Beauty," which I don't think I want to do, I think beauty is too weighted of a term. Uh, it sounds—it's often used judgmentally, I would suppose. Not that sexuality doesn't have the same burden to bear, but when the word "substantial" though plays a role, because that Tom Waits lyric is—he wants you to steal and get caught. Because he loves you for all that you're not. And just pure true confession time, not even as someone who is isn't me situation. That is the mindset that I bring to it. That song resonates with me because I have the opposite worldview. When I see somebody who given a choice between spending time mentally conjuring an image of Paris Hilton versus Kim Kardashian, and the obvious answer here is why would you spend why would you waste time on either, right? But if you were faced with that sort of option, I don't ever go in the Hilton direction here. It's not who I am. It's insubstantial. Uh, people who are that obsessed with, with thin and with petite are essentially, I, I, the accusation I'd make in my head probably is loving somebody for all that they're not. And I don't believe that there's anything intentional about this worldview. It just means that I'm, I'm one of those, you know, maybe I'm one of those male chauvinist pigs who just happens to re- prefer a lot of curves. It's hard to say. But I do know that it's ingrained. So ingrained that, left unchecked, it can lead to some questionable decisions. Uh, I'll just use one quick example. At one point, working in stores, so in this mall record store environment, You get deep into the month of October, and if you haven't made all of your seasonal hiring decisions, you're at risk of getting to Thanksgiving weekend and the craziness that ensues right after it, without having necessarily trained all the cashiers that you need to train so that you have enough extra people who can run what in some cases are actually extra cash registers on the sales floor. And even if you weren't planning to bring somebody in and have them run a cash register for you, it's still not a great idea to bring in a new person the day before Thanksgiving and expect them to understand your sales floor or even some of your policies and procedures well enough to be anything but a liability when customers come in waves asking lots of questions and in many cases wanting very quick and precise answers. So you get to the end of October, the early part of November, and a certain desperation can kick in if you haven't hired well enough or in sufficient enough numbers. This particular year that I'm remembering, we were doing, we had a trainee as well. So I had a manager in training in my store, which means that as much as possible, you'd like to put that person in situations where he can get experience making, in this case it was a he, could have been a she, but where he can get experience making decisions and sort of uh, being in charge of an area. So here I was early part of November, knowing we still needed to do some additional seasonal hiring. And I basically just put him in charge of the process. Now, I knew that he had seen how I managed the interview process and kind of knew what my values were when it comes to the whole job interview procedure. The focus for me there is on finding people who are closer to being borderline obsessed with helping customers than indifferent to helping customers. So getting through that interview process for me in that store environment meant having a certain desire and a certain persistence in making sure that customers are able to find exactly what it is that they want. The only other requirement beyond that is reliable transportation, willingness to work, not necessarily a criminal record, or at least not the wrong kind of criminal record, some very basic stuff. So he went through a first interview process screening people out and took one candidate all the way from the first interview to making the hiring decision. He handed me her application. I looked at it. I looked across the aisle to her where she was, you know, finishing up the interview and said, yeah, I don't have a problem with this. We should go ahead and hire her. Here's the issue. She was 15 years old. Now, there wasn't a problem hiring somebody who was 15, but hiring her before she had turned 16 meant that there were going to be certain rules from the school board and from state law about how many hours we could have her work. So bringing in somebody at a time and you expected them to work not just until close, but even later mall closing hours during the peak holiday season. She was not going to be of much value, having to actually stop her chefs most days at 7pm. I'm not going to point an accusing finger at my trainee here. We both made the mistake. Him as acting manager, me as the actual manager, both of us hired this individual without checking her date of birth and making a judgment call about how old she was based on nothing more than how she looked. She was... Substantial, I suppose, would be the way that I would word it. I don't want to make any numeric presumption about measurements or sizes or anything of that nature, but she did not seem even remotely less than fully mature to either one of us. And, of course, the mistake is, you've always got to check the stats. And I guess I would jokingly say that one or both of us were guilty of not checking the right stats on that particular day. Now, it ended reasonably well. We worked our way through her schedule limitations during the holiday, and it wasn't even till the next summer before she turned 16 and was able to work regular shifts, and we had a, a long-term employment situation. But it just jumps out at me how quickly we made a decision about whether somebody had the right maturity level uh, based strictly on how, how she looked. Now, there's nothing inherently sexual about that. So when it comes to the heading of substantial sexuality... And this particular person that I knew, this former employee of mine, that wasn't a sexual relationship, but I use her as an example because she was aware of her situation and comfortable with it enough that the nickname that her friends gave her was Booba. It was not unusual to have somebody call on the phone near the end of one of her shifts, maybe checking to see if she had a ride or checking to see if she was going to meet them somewhere after a work shift and ask if Booba is there. Now, we used her real name, a much more normal, very typical name, but there was just no getting around the fact that you were working with her and her friends were going to, from time to time, be in and around. She's she's in high school. We're in one of the stores that high school kids like to frequent, and that being her nickname. So I think that tells you all I need to know, I guess, about the shorthand of what I mean by the term substantial. And substantial can have certain downsides to it. But that was such a, I guess, a... Just such a natural part of how I respond to the world that I can tell that story and say, yeah, that's, that's probably a mistake that until you make it the first time, I was prone to make it again. And if I'm going to have my eye caught by something, if I'm going to compartmentalize something, it's not going to be something that in the 1950s we could probably describe with a name like Twiggy. It's more likely in the 1950s and 60s to be something I could characterize with a name like Sophia, for example, or Marilyn, And I don't think this makes me at all unusual. But the funny thing is, I once dated a girl who I think was probably proportionately similar to Booba. And it didn't work out. It wasn't a good fit. We you know, dated for five or six months, and, and then I broke it off. In fact, the story about that has been told a couple of times on inappropriate conversations. Most notably, I believe, number 112, saying no to myself. The first anecdote, as a matter of fact, from that particular podcast. Like all the others, available at www.inappropriateconversations.org. I don't delete shows from the inappropriateconversations.org website, although I've found that the menu of shows available on places like iTunes and Stitcher.com, which is another way of listening to inappropriate conversations on Stitcher, that there doesn't seem to be a huge backlog of shows available there. Maybe the last 20 are out there. So if you wanted to go to back to number 112 and hear that particular boob story, then feel free to interpret that in more than one way. Uh, it goes back to number 112. At the time, I remember thinking that if I was still going out with this girl, or if I'd started going out with her at the uh, junior and senior year part of high school, instead of the freshman-sophomore kind of year part of high school, that a question, a challenge could legitimately have been raised to me, to say, what was I taking to the prom, her or them? This is terminology I've used before on a different, inappropriate conversations, also with a certain self-accusing, mea culpa type feel to it. That one was called breast deduction, number 71. So I've been down this accusing sort of self-reflection before, but... That, that sort of notion of whether somebody is engaged with you as a person or just parts of your body cuts to the chase of this whole compartmentalization thing. But what I'd like to drive home when it comes to talking about sexuality and sexuality from a substantial perspective, what I mean by that is that my personal taste is something there. Meaning that you could almost guess, my wife will say from time to time that she, she actually knew what part of the movie had caught my eye for watching a movie that has a lot of characters in it, because I am, in this respect, fairly predictable. And my guess is that most men are. I wonder if it's not a little bit unfair to point this just at men, that you could probably get to a place with most women where you could anticipate their tastes just as accurately. And for me, anticipating my tastes accurately kind of boils down to this notion of saying, yeah, I prefer things to be substantial. So for this reason, why do I bring it up? I dislike the way our society treats people who, from my perspective, look normal. And I don't mean just normal from the perspective of modern America, where the average person is deemed to be X percent obese, or at least significantly overweight. I think if you look back at the human race over many centuries back, it's not hard to find art where the ideal of beauty looks a lot like what we would call normal today. And that in a lot of cases... The magazine images that catch the eye of people who prefer their beauty less substantial are situations where those people don't actually really look that way. The barbification of our marketing, where Photoshop and other techniques are used to make people look, if not unnaturally thin, at least not accurate to how they actually appear. There was a tweet I shared, uh, well, maybe about a week ago, it could have been right before or right after Valentine's Day weekend. I'm not sure when it was. But it was a picture of a woman shared by somebody I don't personally know. Her name is Lisa Carol Fremont. But she showed a picture of a woman in a red bikini, not a particularly revealing one, uh, lounging on a chair, a man off in the corner of, of the image looking at her. And the caption read, This isn't plus size. It's normal. I did stop, pause the show, and call up the image. Uh, I retweeted it, I think, on February 16th. But I would say that from an image perspective, I mean, this is this is not a petite woman. Um, she certainly is not non-busty. She looks like she has a fairly balanced figure. But to me, the caption was the thing that was most telling. This isn't plus size. It's normal. This year, 2015, there's a conflict going on uh, surrounding Sports Illustrated and the annual Sports Illustrated uh, swimsuit issue. Now, again, I mentioned earlier that not only do I not have a subscription to any of what we might call men's magazines, I was kind of surprised that anybody still does, that these things are floating around the U.S. Postal Service, uh, maybe not anywhere near the rate they did in the 70s, but that that is not completely unusual. It's not totally out of out of the bounds of normal, so I, I don't do that. I also have can't recall the last time, if ever, I've bought a Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Uh, it's just, it's not really... My thing It seems like the glossy magazine off the rack just seems like a weird dynamic now in a way that it didn't when I was probably in my teens. But the flack here lately has been whether or not Sports Illustrated has, has finally broken through their own sort of bias and placed normal sized women in their set of models, in their you know swimsuit issue. And the first example that they put out there was somebody who I think does look. Uh, very normal, kind of, kind of much to my personal taste. And then there was a backlash against It's like, no, this she's not actually in the issue. It's more of an advertisement or something like that. And then there was a response where I think, noting that they were getting bad publicity, they threw somebody out who was substantially thinner than the first woman, but probably substantially less thin than your your average for a swimsuit issue. It's like, we're having a ridiculous amount of conversation that not that we shouldn't be having it, but that we shouldn't be having to have it about whether or not somebody who could be described as healthy and normal should be viewed by the marketing industry in America as fat or unattractive because there's people like me with a taste that tends toward what I would call substantial beauty. The kind of person who doesn't love women for what they're not, but prefers in fact, loving women for what they are and for there being something there to get worked up about yeah, nobody's marketing any images like that to me, at least not in the mainstream publications that you'd think of. So I think the long and the short of the story is that among the other reasons that I'm madly in love with my wife is because of compartmentalization, that the things that I am the most attracted to, she tends to deliver. I asked myself a question a while back, and it's a question that I've wrestled with a little bit, just being the combination of a sports fan and somebody who is aware of and tries to wrestle with compartmentalization, tries to eliminate compartmentalization as much as I can, because I'm a huge fan of the U.S. women's soccer team. I totally agree with the guys from the Men and Blazers TV show and podcast who've suggested that if you're watching uh, soccer in America, if you're an American soccer fan, it would be reasonable for you to describe the World Cup that we had last year in 2014 as just the Men's World Cup, because the real World Cup, the game that should not get the adjective of women slapped in front of it, is the Women's World Cup, which is going to happen this summer in 2015. And the reason for that is, to be purely transparent about my bias, as an American, as an American fan of soccer, this is the game that we're genuinely good at. This is the team that is first, second, or no worse than third best in the world, every year for the last two decades or longer. The U.S. women's soccer team is a superior product compared to the competition to the U.S. men's soccer team. And so I sometimes get caught watching soccer and asking myself, am I enjoying this game because of the game itself? Which I do believe is the true answer. There's a certain amount of passing and tactics that is not drowned out by the sometimes pointless physicality of the men's game. So there's a lot to like there. But when you look at a particular athlete, including one who ironically just a couple years ago was featured in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, Alex Morgan, the question you have to ask yourself is, all right, is she becoming the face of U.S. women's soccer because of what she looks like or because of her unique set of skills? And it's a fair question. I think it's one that anybody who is a soccer fan needs to wrestle with just a little bit because we never had to ask ourselves that question about Abby Wambach. Uh, Abby Wambach being a substantial woman, nevertheless, wasn't somebody who was always getting sort of the paparazzi following her around. So I was asking myself the question, preparing for this show about Alex Morgan and saying to myself, is my interest in her primarily because of the football skills themselves, or is it because of what she looks like? And it dawned on me that it's not because of what she looks like, because on the scale of things, if you were looking at the Twiggy, Paris Hilton side of the, of the spectrum on one end, or the Marilyn Monroe, Kim Kardashian side of the spectrum on the other end, she's a lot closer to the Twiggy than she is to the Marilyn or the Sophia. And for that reason, I sort of sighed and took a deep breath and said, yes, I have a taste. My taste runs in a particular direction. And it does mean that if I call myself a fan of this particular athlete, it's probably legit. Now, she's, she's pleasant looking, she's a, she seems to be friendly, she's very articulate, uh, she's got a good personality, she's cute, I guess would be the way you'd describe her. But probably not what I would compartmentalize. I'm going to compare that to the reason I actually wanted to talk about this topic this year, at this time. The reason I decided it simply could not wait. And it's our different drummer, Swedish actress, Anita Ekberg. I'd made a note that it was worth considering putting Anita Ekberg out there as a different drummer because... I can't remember maybe only one other time in the history of the show that I've put somebody forward as a different drummer for what they look like. Uh, the history of different drummers is pretty clear from reading down the list. It's what people have done, what they've accomplished, what they've thought, what they've said. Um, and maybe, and maybe Elizabeth Shue is the only one in the history of the show where I could be rightly accused, or in this case perhaps only somewhat rightly accused, of saying, you've named that person as an inspiration to you simply because you like the way she looks. Uh, By the way, another example of substantial beauty. But no, in this case, I think that accusation was unfair. There's a list of accomplishments from Elizabeth Shue that stands on its own. But from the perspective of Anita Ekberg, I could probably name a couple of movies where she's made an outstanding contribution to cinema. Maybe three at the most. I wouldn't compare her, I wouldn't even dream of comparing her to Sophia Loren if I was looking for somebody who I also thought was a substantial beauty and, and nevertheless had really made her mark on the craft of acting. I'm not going to accuse Anita Ekberg of having made her mark on the craft of acting. I'm going to cite her now for what she looks like. Now, most people uh, have seen Anita Ekberg. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people have seen her and didn't know they saw her. But her famous scene in the Trevi Fountain in La Dolce Vita is one of those classic iconic film moments that you're going to see it framed on the wall of an Italian restaurant like Buca di Peppa, no doubt. Uh, It's going to be used in montages of great films throughout history. Uh, You're not going to get to any retrospective, any clip show, looking at the achievements of uh, Federico Fellini as a director without it. And she famously made a joke once that people are often saying that people discovered her because of Fellini. She turned it on its head with a a bit of of a wink and a knowing grin, saying people discovered Fellini because of her. But even in the movie Lost in Translation... One of the key scenes where Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson's characters are speaking together in the hotel room, the film they're watching is La Dolce Vita, and the scene they're watching is this one. It's iconic. But if you don't know what Anita Eckberg looks like, it's worth the Google search just to see for yourself. And uh, any clips you might see or any stills or images of her in a black dress standing in a fountain, that's the scene we're talking about. So if I refer to somebody who is uh, iconic because of their looks primarily... Uh, Anita Eckberg comes prominently to mind. And I thought of this again, you know, a few weeks before the end of calendar year 2014. Unfortunately, Anita Eckberg died just a few weeks into this year in 2015. So January 11th, at the age of 83, at her home in Italy, or near there, she died. I'm not sure exactly what the conditions were. The Wikipedia article simply states, complications from enduring illnesses. And I guess by the time you get to be 83 years old, you're going to be dealing with enduring illnesses. The two funny things I think about her, though, I'm going to share a couple of movie ideas in a minute, just to kind of to back this up, that uh, she wouldn't be a different drummer right now if she was a two-dimensional image, uh, either online or on a picture on a wall somewhere. There are key acting performances that I would like to cite. But I also, just when looking for biographical material online, found something that I just think is is too bizarre for words. It's a wiki uh, website called wikifeet.com, the Collaborative Celebrity Feet website, and there is a page for wikifeet.com slash Anita underscore Eckberg. I don't know that I could rightly describe myself as somebody who has a foot fetish, although At times in my life I've joked about it because there's good humor to be found if you can find the right moment. And yet I never would have even dreamed to look for such a thing, and I'm a little bit shocked that such a thing actually exists at all. Here's what the real Wikipedia page has to say. Kirsten Anita Marianne Ekberg, born September 1931, was a Swedish actress, model, and sex symbol. She is best known for her role as Silvia in the Federico Fellini film La Dolce Vita. Ekberg worked primarily in Italy, to which she became a permanent resident in 1964. So, for my entire lifetime, she's been a resident of Italy, and probably for most of my lifetime, since I first noticed her in film, maybe in the late 1970s, I always thought she was from Denmark. (laughs) Don't know why. Early in her life, she became the, uh, the Miss Sweden candidate for what would become the Miss Universe pageant. In 1951, it wasn't an official pageant. I'm not quite sure I know exactly what that means. But she went to compete in that, did not win, but finished as one of the six finalists, and as a result of that, got a contract with Universal Studios. I'm sure Universal Studios' notion was that she was simply going to be decoration, wallpaper, wallflower, what have you. But she did learn, took lessons formally, in drama, elocution, dancing, horse riding, and fencing. This again from the Wikipedia article her earliest movie that I would have seen would have been Abbott and Costello go to Mars the thing about her was that I don't think that she necessarily took herself all that seriously she was willing to be willing to poke fun at her own looks and to appear in comedies and in comedies where her appearance was part of the well part of the joke so to speak she showed up in a couple of different Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis comedies artists and models Hollywood or bust I've seen them both she got a leading dramatic role in Back From Eternity. This was a remake of the Lucille Ball vehicle a couple of decades earlier called Five Came Back, then later on appearing with Marcello Mastroianni in La Dolce Vita with Fellini, and at the end of her career reprising an appearance with Mastroianni in a documentary made with, and in some ways about, Fellini called Inner Vista*. Again, not somebody full of pride, despite the fact that her career was made largely on her looks, because by the time she had made that documentary called InterVista, 1987, you know, she was an elderly woman, and appearing on film as an elderly woman, referring in interviews and in conversations about her younger life, and about the response her younger life had on predominantly male viewers. To get a sense of exactly how popular she was, despite not necessarily being esteemed as a great actress. Again, I think if you put Sophia Loren side by side with Anita Ekberg, look at their careers and ask which one of these is a great actress, if you're only allowed to pick one, it's kind of a no-brainer. But she was uh, the finalist, I guess, for want of a better word, to appear as what might have been the very first Bond girl when um, the character of Honey Rider was cast in Dr. No. It ultimately went to Ursula Andress, but it very easily could have gone to Anita Ekberg, it was essentially a, a last minute decision, at least according to the Wikipedia article. The one thing the Wikipedia article, I think, doesn't do a good enough job of, and what comes to this notion of substantial beauty, is talking about her role in the anthology film Boccaccio 70. This was a film where uh, a thing you'd see a lot in the late 60s and early 70s, where you'd have a group of famous directors get together, wanting to shoot very short segments, maybe wanting to make a, a film that was 20 minutes long, 30 minutes long at the most, and not really having a way of doing that theatrically. So what you'd do is you'd bring a group of them together and say, well, let's shoot three or four or five of these, put it into one package, and release them out into cinemas together. Boccaccio 70 is one example of this. Uh, the directors were Vittorio De Sica, Lucino Visconti, Federico Fellini, and Mario Monticelli. And the central figures in each one of the films were women. The one directed by Fellini was the one featuring Anita Eckberg. Let me see if I can find an English-language description of the plot uh, just to talk about the role that Eckberg played. Yes, so in her episode, uh, The the Temptation of Dr. Antonio, I believe is the translation, an elderly citizen is fed up with too much immorality in the form of indecent content in print. Note here, for example, I'm calling together this combination of the notion of substantial beauty, the reactionary nature of the way the American Family Association several decades ago responded to Saturday Night Live, and the response to that that I'm not sharing today, but I would have if I would thought of it sooner, and this notion of smut on TV and getting the smut off, off TV or out of our media, this, uh, this segment from Boccaccio 70 deals with exactly that. Antonio is an elderly citizen, fed up with too much immorality in the form of indecent contact in, in print in this case. Billboard, actually, is the situation. His anger knows no bounds when a provocative billboard of Anita Ekberg, as herself, advertising, drink more milk, is put up in a park near his residence. Little does he know how that billboard will go on to change his life, Wikipedia says. Throughout the film, children are heard singing in the jingle, uh, drink more milk, drink more milk. The image begins to haunt him with hallucinations in which she appears as a temptress, a giant-sized temptress, and Dr. Antonio as St. George to spear the dragon. He is pursued and captured by the buxom Swedish star in a deserted Rome, And at one point, his umbrella falls between her breasts. You get the sense of it. An intentionally provocative sexual story featuring an actress who's portraying substantial sexuality and what I think can only be described as her substantial beauty. It is in this context, and by the way, Boccaccio 70 is a film well worth seeing. It's not the best of its kind. Probably from Italy, the one I prefer as being uh, a better example of its kind is Rogo Pog, um, again, featuring three different, four different directors, uh, among them former different drummer Pier Paolo Pasolini. But whether it's Rogopog or Boccaccio 70, I think those anthology films, especially the ones coming from Europe, are underregarded, underappreciated, and somewhat lost to history. They don't necessarily work on television. But if you think back to the 1970s, when shows like Trilogy of Terror were first made to be shown on American television, three different stories in a 90-minute film, for example. The 70s were perhaps the heyday for this. 1962 is when this particular film was released, and I guess at the risk of sounding somewhat sexist, I would say that perhaps in 1962, Anita Ekberg was at the height of her powers. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Sphere. I wanted this episode to be more than just Greg's version of I like big butts and I cannot lie, and I gotta say I'm not 100% sure that I've succeeded. I'll I'll finish the confessional tale, though, by, by trying to at least put a little twist at the end of it. I can remember in the late 1970s, being junior high school aged, sitting in the family living room on the floor, watching Three's Company as a family. I'm not sure we were all together watching Three's Company. I'm not exactly sure what that dynamic was. In retrospect, it seems probably a little awkward, but I know at the very least that my mom, my dad, my older sister, and I were were watching television at the same time, watching Three's Company, and there was commentary being made about Suzanne Somers versus Joyce DeWitt, and I... To be honest with you, as a teenage boy, I found both of them delightful in their own ways. And the questions started being directed toward me from both parents, mom in particular, a little bit from my older sister, about what my tastes were, what, what was I getting from this show. And I think what they were pursuing was... Was I a boob man or was I an ass man? And in some ways, trying to deflect some of that, trying not to answer those questions too directly, I just kept sort of deferring. And so the question came to me very directly, as if I was kind of uh, being cross-examined, I was under oath. What was I the most interested in? You, you can tell us, if you're in a classroom, and, you know, a classroom that has a lot of girls in it, what is the thing that you're the most interested in? I just looked, looked at him bluntly and said, I, I know how to end this conversation. I can end this conversation by being honest. But also by being very straightforward. Uh, at that age and at that time, and perhaps still now, the thing I'm most curious about isn't necessarily boobs or legs or ass. It's what's in between. By making a reference to being interested at that young age and what was in between those legs, shut down the conversation. <laughs> and maybe it's a good way to shut down this conversation. But I'll do so by saying that there's nothing insubstantial about that. We all have our tastes. And to me, the most tragic thing is not having a recognition and an understanding of that and thereby being able to manage any compartmentalization that might be going on in your life, knowing when something catches your eye so you can deal with it appropriately. To me, among the biggest tragedies in our society is that there are still people, still people within the church in particular, who strongly feel that it's not only not a bad thing for men to be compartmentalizing, Isolating who they really are from what they really think and separating things out, but that they want it that way. There are people who are watching shows on TLC like My Husband's Not Gay, not from the perspective of it's some sort of a freak show or a problem that needs to be solved. The problem for me is that there's some people who watch shows like that and say, that's the way it ought to be. Anybody who isn't as attracted to women as, say, I am, for example, in the minds of these particular Christians should at least be forced by extreme social pressure, or perhaps even draconian laws, to fake it, to act like they are. I go back to that junior high school self of mine sitting on the carpet in front of the television watching Three's Company. I'm glad that I'm, I was raised to be the kind of person who doesn't fake it. Take from that what you will. And thanks for listening.